I have no idea. I'm trying to find them. The show's about to start. Let me call again. Why isn't he picking up the damn phone? Okay, I'll try it again. Okay, back. The circle and the square. On movement, part two. Recorded live at Heartbreak Meadows, Northeast Oregon. By Cliff Krigo. We'll let this sound out here. Our avian soloist is the great Swainson's thrush, Casaros Ustelatus. Also, like the hermit thrush the day before yesterday hasn't quite uh, arrived yet. Thanks, Simon. He's playing with the um, wonderful uh, chords of um, the now endangered species in North America of train, passenger train, the Amtrak. If you're listening to this from Russia or Beijing or Mumbai, and want to see America, the best way is to go with the wind, even with the wild jet stream, uh, moving in wavier patterns, the west to east winds now 20% less, but the great empire builder um, that goes in the northern tier all the way through Glacier National Park on the way to Chicago where you can find people basking in the street who are way above the level of the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. Well, that's one of my favorite uh, musics. I'd rather listen to that, <laughs> those wonderful chords of the Amtrak. Those are acoustic chords that they play uh, through some sort of a uh, compressed air thing. I've never actually been up with the conductor. And uh, when I tell people here in North America that, gee, what, uh, what am I doing out here? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a conductor, and they'll say Amtrak, and I'm honored. But it's an endangered uh, species, Amtrak. Worldwide, uh, a weed is the neoconservative, is that a good neocon, ex-con, that's a little bit better, that everything private is good, everything public is bad. That's a pretty simple philosophy, isn't it? Kind of Ayn Rand, let's take over the world. <laughs> and it gives you an ethical justification to destroy everything except your own uh, tower in the middle of a now uh, almost under sea level uh, Manhattan. Well, that sound of the shifting pitches, is that B-flat major? Well, we have to ask somebody smarter than me, maybe Simon, but it's shifting around in space in a wonderful way. So that inspired our little intro uh, movement, movement. So, a difference that makes a difference. And yesterday we were talking on the water and we began with a, a miniature, one of those sayings in prose. And let me, um, Remind the listeners, I'll do it again, but slightly different, and see if you catch the difference. This is part two. 
Um, how does it go? Form emerges out of movement. It is the outward envelope of the rhythmic pulse of life. See, we change something there. Not just change, but life, energy. So we're saying that life, energy, movement, and change are all one thing. So sound takes on a much, much greater... Now we're getting the winds coming in. Let's pause a moment. So we've moved um, our little recording camp. You can probably hear. We're close to the little mountain stream again. And it's more protected from the wind here. We're surrounded on two and a half sides, more than a half circle, conifer forest. And looking towards the southwest, it's still entirely snow. And because we're south-facing here on this little slope going right into the water, this is snow-free and just starting to green up with Primavera, the first green. So let's uh, do that little sutra sayings and uh, saying and prose. These are not uh, poems, uh, by the way. They have a different quality of energy. What they're trying to do is to crystallize an idea. Form emerges out of movement. Like all these ripples and waves and whirlpools and vortexes that if you were seated, seated right here together in a dialogue circle next to the stream, well, they're emerging out of the deeper flow, the formative flow, we call it, of the water itself. Isn't that beautiful? So you could think about the waves and turn them into a thing. But what we're doing is turning that around and directing awareness towards the movement itself. So form emerges out of movement. It is the outward envelope, and this is the change, of the rhythmic pulse of life. So we're saying the movement, the pattern, the patternation, turning it into a verb, are all one. Now let's bring it really quickly down, back down to new music, music again. Well, if we listen to the notes of a melody, how do we make sense of that pattern? This is not being intellectual in the plain false kind of academic uh, tradition. This is very serious stuff. How on earth, because at any one moment, it's like a paradox, there's only one note sounding, right? So something in our being, perception, it's much more than just the brain is making a whole out of those individual notes. So they're folding into, from time, into a kind of space, very similar to the way when you just play notes at random on a grand piano and then push down the sustaining pedal you can hear that actually taking place. <clears throat> well, let's listen to a little bit of this. It took me by surprise. That's what we call the swallow, as in the bird, Kabir. 
Hold on. Well, um, as I mentioned, I think yesterday, for fun, I um, drop little uh, sounds uh, at random intervals, and I always forget where they're at. So they take me by surprise, too. It's good to wait. It's like a, the, the um, sitting meditation of the Zen monks. It's kind of a monkish life up here, mountain monk. And then you have the uh, disciplined stick or the awareness that it has different names. They'll come, and it's a very sharp sound, although they say it doesn't cause pain. I'm not about to go do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it wakes you up, and uh, that's why I do that. Um, but that was a little bit of this, what is called the Swallow Clavier. It's from a project called uh, Ridge Crossing. And as you hear, now that is a, what I call a performance model. So it's like a mock-up of an art architect. Uh, say you're going to build a concert hall. So you build a model to scale. But actually, it's more than that. And we were discussing that yesterday. The shape of change. We're just getting started with the swallow clavier. And uh, it is uh, going through a whole series of cascading, if we listen to the whole piece, I'll, maybe we can play it at the end as a sounding out coda. Well, it goes through a whole series of cascading, what we were calling and called geometric spirals. Remember yesterday we were talking about the pine cone and then two complementary spirals and just like the sunflower and complementary Fibonacci spirals that are interwoven. And it's one of the most beautiful patterns, not just in nature, but in the universe. And evidently works at all orders of scale out to the size of an entire galaxy, down to a single pine cone. Now, obviously, when we look at the sunflower pine cone, it's all there all at once. So in formal language in the circle in the square, we can be formal, we can be mathematical, or we can be a little bit looser, jazzy, and just improvise even to the point of being, uh, I think the Greeks had a very good sense of this, a body in the sense of uh, a satyr play. So uh, don't forget, we fully expect here at Heartbreak Meadows, <laughs> given the current political uh, malaise, that a masterpiece like the symposium, that means drinking party <laughs> in Greek. Well, I don't know if you've ever listened. You must listen to it. It's always better uh, to the symposium. It's a drama of the highest philosophical nature, Plato. And the star, as always, is our Socrates. But they go around the, the, the table, and they're all telling, um, uh, improvising their view of Eros. Woo! Well, and <laughs> like we're very close to Sparta here in Northeast Oregon. I always kid with people, well, do you know, is that named for, or do you know that uh, in Sparta, uh, they separated all the males uh, from the family at the age of, I think, uh, five or seven, and they were given a uh, male lover. So what we think of as homosexuality was considered the most powerful form of sexuality. And they stayed together with the male lo lover throughout uh, their 20s until they were married. And uh, then it was, of course, a gradual transitioning to what we call heterosexuality. So, sorry about the diversion, but it is kind of tragic comic. So we fully expect <laughs> the symposium to be outlawed anytime soon, but we'll defend it.
and we'll defend uh, Plato, and we'll especially defend the great uh, Socrates, who refused to write anything down. Now, how would you write down that swallow, Clavier? Well, as we were discussing yesterday, a difference that makes a difference. So if it's moving in geometric uh, time, you have different forms of constants. So the change has a constant, it becomes a constant variable. So in the circle and the square, we get up our uh, formal, logical, mathematical chops. We don't take it to extremes. And it doesn't begin, the music doesn't come out of mathematics. That would be a mistake. Or it could be a mistake. It's coming out of something much, much more beyond mathematics. So we're always beginning, that's the idea of the circle and the square, the circle represents the unmeasurable, not just the unmeasured, but that which is like the stream. We can model it, but do we really understand living water? No way, that is not possible. And certainly we wouldn't abuse water. This water that we're looking at is terribly abused. So it's in its cycle of self-purification, moving, moving, and what happens within 40 kilometers of here, it slams into a reservoir in a dam, becomes eutrophied, polluted. I always tell people, well, I run back and forth. I, I tell them, I say, well, go down there to that reservoir and drink that water for a week and see how you feel. Well, I've had to do it. And I can tell you it's a disgrace. So what is the relationship between living water and living sound? For me, there's no difference. Good water, good sound. Bad water, bad sound. They're both equally bad for us. So we're trying to transcend ourselves out of relativism. For me, it's not trying, it's just a fact. But every time I'll go downstream into the chaos of culture, out of this natural circle here, well, um, all of a sudden you find yourself being necessarily, in a way, very defensive. So sound movement, geometric sound, computers that are exploring time-space, time folding into space. So it's really fast. We have that now. Form emerges out of movement. Well, the next time you listen to a piece of music or hear a poem, this is about poetry too, right? Do you think we have any sense of movement and time and rhythm? And absolutely not. In contemporary, but where are you going to go? <laughs> spoken word? Whenever you hear in German, also, uh, uh, spoken word, Ausführung. Uh, <laughs> Whenever you hear an English word, your radar should go up. So, uh oh. <laughs> now we're going to hear some poets do a little bit of rapping in German, right? But we're saying, we're questioning the whole thing. Anything that has been corrupted by commercial culture, including the whole of rap, the whole of hip-hop, and all the rest of it, with all due respect, we're questioning it. So do they absolutely not give a poet a microphone and they're imitating uh, Michael Jackson or whatever, whatever. No, it's an absolute, in my view, it's an absolute disgusting uh, disaster. But this is a dialogue circle. So we put that in the middle and uh, look at it. Movement. Well, this water is not a disaster. So if we get confused, we go back to nature and do our sittings in for a while. Even without the master, we say if there's a master, then it's no real meditation. So we don't need the warning stick. We'll do it ourselves. Thank you.
geometric movement. Well, it's a whole universe that's yet to be explored and tremendously exciting, and we have the technology to do it. So why don't we do it? Simply because it's not on our map. So it doesn't exist. Full stop. It's not on our map. We don't hear music, we hear our map of music. It has many distortions which lead us astray. Is that true? We'll figure it out. So we're questioning the maps. New music, new poetry, new dance begins in awareness of the map as it is actually taking place. So like the stream, there is a movement of self-purification that's going on at the same time without division and without control. So it's fun. So if we go around that circle of the primary concepts of the shape of change, we have difference at the top, and then really quickly, complementarity. Well, that's what we were talking about, yin and yang. So what's the yin and yang of a wild swallow clavier? Don't forget it has very strict limits. If you listen to it very carefully, I'll be very quick. It's one finger clavier. There are no chords. Chords can be the death of movement and counterpoints. So we eliminate all chords, but it's moving obviously very, very quickly. Now, can a human being, you better believe it, they can actually do it. Like there must be in China a thousand young pianists who could easily play that piece and it would fit perfectly into their Taoist uh, uh, tradition, not the Confucian tradition. Easily do it. And what would they learn is that, number one, there are no damn beat accents. We're so conditioned to playing beat accents, it takes years to unlearn that. And it's totally arbitrary. It destroys the movement. If you put a pulse in a movement that doesn't belong there, this river doesn't move like that, a pine cone doesn't move like that. So very quickly, the geometric complementary movement, sure, it can be played like that. But without the computer or me singing it for you, how are you gonna, you're not going to be able to figure it out because the notation is extremely not complicated. It's made as simple as possible, but it's complex. So you see lots of, there's no other way to notate it. Uh, than to actually put the numerical values for the tempo changes. And then you have things like tempo octaves that we're not going to go into right now. But the next one in our clock is the um, qualitative ground. The spatial, the full thing is spatial, temporal, qualitative ground. It's probably one of the most important stops on that circle of the shape of change. Why? Because that is what, that's the quality of energy that manifests when we bring a piece of uh, music or poetry or dance to life in performance. Whether it's recorded or played live. Now that does make a difference and we're going to come back to that, not today, but another time. The qualitative, it's the first thing I look for. If I'm listening to a piece of music and if I'm not struck instantly by the qualitative ground, I turn it off. I say, no, I'm not going there. It's like a path in the wilderness you see. It goes straight off a cliff or it runs into a cliff. You can't go any further. So why should I waste my time? You can always be wrong, but then you come back again. But what you're looking for, what you're looking for, there were a few people in the 20th century who could do that. One sound from the great Luciano Berrio, boom, you're there. But only in a brief period in the 60s. And it peaked, it had something to do mysteriously with the equally great singer, Kathy Barbarian, that somehow they brought down to earth an absolutely magnificent sound. And then it was gone. So talent uh, can make lousy music. We're not interested in, everybody has genius, everybody has talent, it just manifests in different ways. What we're looking for are the ideas, the crystals. That's what those sutras, those sayings are about. And we need to bring that tradition back into the English-speaking part of the world. In India, they've never lost it, they're fighting to save it. In China, they never lost it in places. 
And are they fight? I don't know. Japan, the same. So the description is not the thing described. And David Bohm used to quote Alfred Zabitsky, the logician that worked at the great Princeton dream camp, I call it, where Einstein was, and many other from Neumann, and many others fleeing the Nazis, and it just fell into North America's lap. Some of the greatest mathematicians and thinkers of all time. We didn't deserve it. But they came here and found a place to flower. Whatever you say all is, it is not. Well, that's liberating. Just that little saying. So whatever we're saying it is, you have to step back from it. It's just a way of looking. Like we were talking about Bronson Alcott. Truth is spherical. So we're just seeing a part of that proverbial elephant and mistaking the leg for a tree. But geometric movement. So qualitative ground. Can that be taught? I don't know. I know we'll never have a sense of qualitative ground if we don't re-resonate it's almost re-religion, re-linking ourselves with the cultural world together with the far greater world of nature. Without that, I don't think it's possible. So we're moving quickly. Qualitative ground. We'll come back to that. It's one of the most important things. Some traditions never, like in India, they never lost sight of it. But we have totally lost it. And a part of it is uh, things like the piano, equal temperament, repetition, and many other reasons. But let's keep going. Density. That's number four in our circle. Density. So that's a very high density, that swallow, kovir. And yet there's only one line. If you study the square, there's only one line. It's just moving extremely quickly like a swallow. But as it goes on, it starts to slow down and speed up in a very mysterious way. And fold into itself in exactly the same way that a pine cone folds or a nautilus shell folds into itself. Except it's happening in time, not in space, and then becomes space. So if we move on quickly, the whole thing with density, well, from high to low density, there's a tremendous symphonic orchestral music to be made just from that one concept. But you can't possibly just do that with notation. It's not possible. You have to have other instruments at your disposal. We'll go into that later. But keep going, density. Now we go directionality. Now who understood that? Glenn Gould. I always <laughs> cringe, I call it the, the old music people, whom I have tremendous admiration for, and I've done a good bit of that myself. And I'm a great, great admirer of Vivaldi and will eternally hold Stravinsky responsible for that insult, always repeating the same concerto. But uh, um, no, it's infinitely rich. But the old music people, directionality, they make fun of Gould. And it infuriates me because what you look for is not just qualitative ground. Say you're coming into a concert and you're hearing a whole program of new poems in French. And what you're looking for is that qualitative ground. A poem is the qualitative ground. It's unmistakable in real poetry. A poem hardly lasts more than a breath or two or three or five or six. And in that short and absolute terms, almost nothing of a time space, it weaves a whole that is resonating with the world. And the better the poem, the deeper the resonance. Right? But that's not just an individual. That's a whole tradition out of which the individual emerges, not the other way around. 
So directionality. Well, study the Goldbergs. The last recording around 1984. I always used to return to those recordings before conducting Verez in the old days. Because with Verez, uh, directionality is crucial. And of course, if I say neutral, a movement, um, that is not a concept that is on the map. Even directionality, that's not something you're taught at uh, university or conservatory. Whereas it's absolutely crucial. Whether or not a, a music is moving towards something, away from something, or whether it's floating like a cloud on a beautiful day like today, just sitting there and almost motionless, sitting in a raft in an alpine lake. There's no rehearsal tomorrow, no concert next week, and it's a completely timeless space. But that wouldn't exist without this little rapids where we're sitting now, right? It's a complementary back and forth. They're co-relative with that. You can't fragment one from the other, and this water knows that, understands it, and that is its nature of movement. That is how it self-purifies. And when we think about water, what do we do? Exactly the same damn thing that we do when we do minimal music. That we'll put it into a straight concrete channel and think that's a river. That's not a river. That's just an open sewer. Compared to our Swainson thrush that we started with. Now, they haven't arrived yet. They don't come here at this altitude all the way, say, about uh, the third or fourth week of May. So we'll be looking out for them. And you always hear them before you see them. It's like myself. I'd much rather be heard than seen and then just disappear into the background. But when they do arrive, all the way from South America, Central America, depending, we have the russet uh, back to here. So I believe that that's Central America, although they don't wear that on their passport. Let's put up a wall and keep them out. But they're going back and forth, right? They have much, much better lives than we do. They must look at us and say, oh, those poor people, people. Just always fat and lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so spoiled, no music. And they have so much leisure, they spend their entire day in song. They just don't sing in the morning. Now that little recording that we heard there, perhaps, let's hold on a second. Yes, there they are. Who's in charge of the technical department here? The, the levels are a little bit long. But uh, this was recorded around summer solstice. And you always have to be ready. The microphones have to be ready. And uh, I was uh, biking up a steep grade, and it just took my breath away. There are three of them there, none of whom I saw, and I didn't try to see. But notice that they make a spiral. It's the only bird in this area that makes an ascending spiral like that. Isn't that remarkable? So maybe later if we have time, we'll listen to it slow down a little bit. It's very, very fascinating to explore in, in more detail the nature of their song. Well, maps. Now, if an avian specialist, which I don't consider myself at all, I just love the sound, and very much miss it if I'm not around it, um, well, uh, they could say, oh, three of them together. Now, they're obviously competing for territory. Birds are very territorial in general, and so are the Swainson's thrushes, but nothing like the robin. But that's an assumption, not a fact, because we're not actually talking to the birds. <laughs> we don't know. And uh, we can assume that, and that could be a faulty assumption. In my view, when I was recording that, I did not sense territorial energy. And usually I can sense that. If you live up here, 
uh, day in, day out, you attune to that, those kinds of subtle differences. That, that doesn't mean that you have any authority whatsoever. It's just that you resonate with it. And that's different than just having an intellectual relationship with the bird or the sound or whatever. But on the map is usually the competition, like composers competing for territory. Well, that's uh, the brutish brain rules in the art uh, uh, universe as well. <laughs> well, um, that could very well be untrue because nature red in tooth and claw has been taken of Darwinian uh, fight for survival. It's been taken way too far because of Western culture. And uh, we fail to see, well, there it is again, the complementarity. Conflict, we say, in nature does not exist. Now, that's obviously rhetorical. We could be sitting here and a grizzly bear come down on us. Well, not here, it would be a black bear. And uh, that would be the end of our recording, wouldn't it? Even without that, who was that technical advisor we were looking for around here? So you see a map. No one is free of, no science is free of that map. We're seated happily, by the way, on that ecotone. If you remember from a few days back, that's the borderline between open field and meadow in the very high density, there you have it, high density, low density, of the conifer forest. They have been a complementarity beyond all compare. And for humans, it has conditioned, our whole natural history has conditioned us to that beauty. Where we have that ecotone, we have security. Where we hear the sound of this water, we have safety and the most important resource, to use an ugly word. We cannot survive without this rushing, living, pure water. And there are many species, many of the song thrushes, like the varied thrush we talked about yesterday, the spirit thrush. Well, this is his home, right, right here. So we could be sitting here two months from now, huh, all of a sudden they're back. Isn't that a miracle? Well, so is that Swainson's ascending melody. And whether or not they're competing, that is, serves as a theory, not a fact. And that's not to denigrate the theory. It's just that, well, let's try another theory. And it might do a better job of explaining what's going on. So we're celebrating the music of the Swainson and that geometric character of the spirals, contrasting it with just the static little chirps <laughs> of much of our uh, music. Remember, that's fitting into the square mold of 4434. Isn't that remarkable? No, I forgot to mention that uh, I'm partly at home in the Alps. Now there, remarkably, the uh, commercial uh, pattern is not 4-4, four, four, it's 3-4. Now why would that be? Somebody figure that out. Good theme for a dissertation. It's three, four. It's much more rolling water, although it tends to be mechanical as well. Four, four. And now we're going to put them together. So we have the open meadow, low density. You see how it works, this movement. And we come into the hyperdensity, natural complexity. Natural complexity is always good. What we look out for is when it's corrupted and complicatedness, which is always bad. There's no relativism about that. Why? Because it self-destructs and is non-sustainable. So now, let's see, we haven't, let's get around the circle. So we've done the directionality. Oh, I just mentioned uh, Glenn Gould. Going to and from, and then floating, and then something that's doing neither, a completely neutral 
pulse. In some ways, rather like a computer does rhythm, it depends. But if we keep going, then we have constant variables. Skip that for now. Then we get to smooth rough. There's a lot of that going on here with the water. And then we get sync, async, one of the most important concepts. A totally new music will be born out of that. And it's already emerging. It started with Varez and Charles Ives. And to a certain extent also with Stravinsky. But has yet to be fully even realized in terms of possibilities, let alone actualized. So sync, async, but quickly moving on simple, complex. And then we get continuous discrete, like we were talking about with all those trombone glissandis. And then that mysterious one that's really not mysterious at all, that's the holigarchy, that's the order of the whole. So it's no longer this Confucian militaristic top-down that is coming now to dominate the whole world because of money, weapons, and mechanical power. It has absolutely zero intelligence to it. So it will self-destruct. It, can it can't do anything else except self-destruct. So just pondering the oligarchy is a form of resistance because we see, gee, you totally disempower it. Right, if I see that all hierarchies are violent or potentially violent, the most extreme form is remarkably the military or the classic uh, orchestra, top down. You do not speak back to a guest conductor at the Berlin Philharmonic during rehearsal, maybe after rehearsal. Think of that. You just slick it in, even though you know the guy's making a mistake. So, hierarchy's perfectly fine, but uh, oligarchy is vastly beyond that. So it's top down, bottom up, but let's move on quickly. And then our last one is the somatic, it's formally it's called the universal somatic body, soma, constant. That means no matter what we do, we are embodied intelligences with a whole natural history, what I call the brutish brain of a wolf or a bear. It's just part of our natural history at a very, very low level. Like, dislike, pain, pleasure, very violent in a way for uh, self-preservation. Now that's perfectly fine as long as we understand how that works. But if we don't understand how it works, if there's like that ignorance of the mechanisms behind the brutish brain, then you get the world that we have now. If there's awareness, it takes away the, it puts it in its proper place, like putting the hall of thought in its proper place. It's just an instrument to be used. And then we step back from it. Like just here, that's the meaning of a pilgrimage site, like here, Heartbreak Meadows. you retreat to a sangha, as the Buddhist calls it. It's one of the oldest traditions on the planet, a safe, protected space. Every child needs a safe, protected space. Protected from what? Well, first and foremost, in the contemporary world, we're not worried about the bears. We're worried about... Uh, the commercial colonization of their spirits. Like the great Native American poet and thinker and philosopher John Trudell, hold on, this is a culture that eats spirits whole, and it's true. That's why all organized religions are questioned, including Buddhism. We question all of them. Because the tendency, as soon as a religion has a name, its tendency is towards corruption, right? The same goes for any kind of music. So the semantic constant, 
powerfully embodied. So is that little computer model of the swallow clavier embodied? Yes. And how is that possible? Well, I don't know. I have no idea where those tones come from. That's like a whole ritual of weeks and weeks and weeks that you're... Uh, it's like doing a yoga, Alexander Technique. And then you have the technique, the things like that manifest. But where they come from, that's not a procedure. It's not a technique. It's not a system. And then all of a sudden it seems right. Now, how do you determine if it's right? It's energy. When you really listen, I could deceive, be deceiving myself, of course. We all can. That's why we need to have a dialogue circle. It's much easier for you to see my deception and vice versa, right? But when we hear that music, I instantly align myself without thinking about it. It's beyond, it's faster than thought can react. And it's not a knee-jerk condition, it's faster than that. There's some sort of energy brings you up to the stars and takes you, roots you down into the earth. So listen to it and see what you think. And anyway, that's why I do it. Now, would people... No, that's not other man. They don't... They, um, uh, it's like Kabir, the great um, Indian poet... So let's slow down with the river that the equally great Robert Bly has brought out years ago in translation. There are other translations that are perhaps a little bit more musical. But what's so interesting about Kabir is that he bridged both the Hindu and the Muslim tradition. Boy, we need some of that around Modi. In that uh, um, the beautiful story is when he passed on that they fought about his body. Who was going, now that, that is so beautiful as a story. That's the whole problem with religion when it becomes organized. We're going to fight, right? Like the Swainsons are fighting, <laughs> right? So let's fight. Who's, who's the best musician? So they fought about his body and it was covered in a shroud, shroud and they pulled it off and trying to decide who's going to get the remains and there was just a marvelous bouquet of flowers. Well, you couldn't have a more beautiful poem than that. So difference, high, low density. And the last thing I wanted to touch on today is resonance. You hear it in the word, resonare. So it's a sound that resounds. We hear a little bit of that in an echo. We hear it in, when we think of as musicians, it would be different than with poetry, as with Kabir, and different than with dance. What is resonance? Well, you could start with science. One of the greatest scientific um, spirits of all time, of course, was Nikola Tesla. If you want to understand the principles of the universe, think in terms of energy, vibration, and energy, vibration. I was going to say sound. Energy, vibration, resonance. We could say resonance, but... Well, you know what I want to say. But that's Tesla. And now what makes Tesla so special, in my own view, 
is that he was doing science in a very different way than he was a whole generation or two before Einstein. And my own view is that uh, the Einsteinian and all its brilliance, making no claim, claim to understand any of it except culturally and spiritually, is that because of the way it's based on a very limited mathematics. Don't forget, our view is that the mathematics is not generating the movement. It's describing the movement. And then you can generate it in models, but that's always going to be an imitation. It could be a false path and the way that it certainly has taken us down a very destructive path. And I think Tesla saw that. But Tesla was doing a, a kind of science that didn't have its source in figuring out things with a highly complex uh, mathematics. He was doing it with his entire instrument, much like a composer or a performer or a poet thinks. And then manifest that in the story goes, in almost infinite re resolution, actual physical models that demonstrated the principle. Isn't that remarkable? We're holding the device and recording this based on those principles. Resonance. So a very weak signal we pick up and amplify with another energy into a stronger signal, resonance. Now, when we think of resonance, and we're going to end with that, and just let the water sing us out. Resonance, as musicians, we normally think in terms of space. In other words, in terms of pitch or frequency. So you have the demonstration of the tuning fork, bing, and then you put that down on the table and all of a sudden it's from nothing to a really big loud sound. We've all seen that demonstration. Well, the table, the resonance of the wood, a totally unique substance in its resonance quality that you can't imitate with an unnatural composite yet. So it's amplifying naturally, giving energy to that vibration, frequency, energy, vibration, that's it. Excuse me. He could have said resonance. He knew an awful lot about resonance. Could actually start earthquakes in the middle of Manhattan. That's a true story. It's a beautiful way of doing science, just to finish with Tesla, that uh, you demonstrate truth. By golly, the lights work. The signals carried at a distance. Imagine that. We're going to broadcast signals without wires. Hmm? It sounds totally crazy. Frequency, energy, vibration, resonance, resonance. Now we normally think in terms of time, or uh, space rather, and that's what I wanted to say. There's also a resonance in terms of time, when and where something happens, whether or not it will be amplified in a natural way. And that's what we're looking for, right? Artificial amplification is for all art death. Once you start to bring in just electric amplifiers, then you wind up with the musicians playing with earplugs in and they can't hear after they're 30 or 40 years old. You have opera with uh, singers uh, singing with microphones, right? And then you, uh, you would have, uh, it started already with Wagner 
why weren't uh, two, three violins enough? No, let's put 20 or 30 of first violins. <laughs> it has to be bigger and louder and louder. That is the uh, Emerson, right? The much will have more. Of runaway, that's pure thought. Me. It's when music becomes utterly degenerate and self-centered. Just projecting the me instead of serving the muse. Like you serve this river and protect it. And then it will nourish you. So resonance. So think of that. Resonance in terms of space or frequency or pitch. And resonance in terms of time. Well, that swallow clavier is hitting nodes of resonant time. Let that sink in. Don't take my word for it. You have to explore it yourself. Tear it apart. Look at the numbers. Read the stuff that's been written that I've written about uh, octaves and geometric glissandi through time. And then you have to actually work at it to uncondition yourself. When you come with the idea of unlearning instead of learning, you have them in the frame of mind you want. That's F.M. Alexander. And that's exactly right. That's when listening begins. When it infinitely brings you down to earth. Well, gee, I don't know really, do I? Instead of projecting the me, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, whatever, right? That's become very common. Everywhere, not just in politics, but also the arts. So resonance, time and space. So hitting those nodes, those are the convection points where the energy comes together. <clears throat> when a, that's what conducting, and as far as conducting has any meaning whatsoever, I question the whole thing. The whole purpose of conducting is being like a guide, that you know the territory with natural authority, you know it by heart, and you're guiding through a wilderness, and your whole purpose is to make yourself unnecessary. So that the whole movement becomes self-purifying and self-organized. Then you simply walk away. You don't even go to the performances. You've done your work. That we still have these people, these orchestras, people out there waving their arms. <laughs> it's a joke. Ask somebody who actually plays in the orchestra. <laughs> it's a joke. There can be vision, but that's one in a million. That's Glenn Gould. There can be vision. That's Nicolas Anencourt. That's vision. Now we're running out of names. <laughs> Resonance. Well, here's one for you, and we're going to end with that, I promise. Stokowski, there's a magnificent, I think it's 1964, I'll do it very quickly, but find it, whoever put it on YouTube, A Thousand Prayers and Blessings, because it is the first performance of one of the greatest pieces of all time, certainly in North America. There's nothing that even comes close to it. The Fourth Symphony, with all its weaknesses and defects, why? Because it's one idea, magnificent crystal after the other. And he never heard that piece. It was never performed. There was never a score. There were never any parts or anything. So here come these people. They worked two years to prepare the parts, the scores, with a fantastic orchestra that played at Carnegie Hall before it was Carnegie Hall, before... She, it was uh, renovated and all the rest of it. It must have been around 1964. Now, I never knew Stokowski as a contemporary conductor. But when I said so this, it only runs an hour. 
but it's highly, highly, highly recommended to study very closely. In every single regard, it's a fantastic orchestra. Just to listen to the trombone section, magnificent. Only in New York is that possible. But here's Stokowski. Now his principle is, did he know? No, he didn't know. He knew the score pretty well. He could get through it, made no mistakes. They had multiple conductors. You could conduct that piece just solo. I insist. And, but what does he do? He hits all the nodes of that temporal resonance, just spot on. And he makes sure that what we call in the circle and the square, sustaining the energy, in Italian, sostenuto, but with a new twist, a new meaning, that there's never a break, that the energy never falls apart. And that's the contradiction of doing recordings, like when you're going to record Mahler or something, you do a hundred takes and you're pacing, like all the Baroque people, <laughs> they bring in the expensive equipment and they start playing and they're just hoping that the guy, the, 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 the engineer and the producer, they're going to stick it together. <laughs> it's just terrible the way that music is produced. But there, this is before <laughs> we were, 1964, and there's Stokowski and it is so charming and has such a humility and power that is uh, very remarkable. And of course, our last great transcendentalist, Charles Ives, he never got to hear it. Just the first movement. We don't need to have the extraordinary, what we call in the circle and the square, we'll get to that in another talk, the three chaoses. We see that's not on anybody's map, right? So what the hell is Cliff talking about? Three chaoses, well, what's that? Well, there happens to be, look at this water. Don't take my word for it. You have to come here to look at the water. You have to perform eyes by heart, right? So that's your two years. That's going to take a while. Charlie wasn't in a hurry. He didn't even get to hear the thing played. But that was a magnificent way, almost like uh, Leonard Bernstein, the way that he would honor Stravinsky. It's a beautiful way to honor what comes before you. I can't really add anything to that, so we're going to stop right here and now. And we'll sound out with a little bit more of that swallow clavier. Thanks for listening. So this is Cliff signing off for csdesmusic.com. Find that American Symphony Orchestra playing in Manhattan, 1964, the great Charles Ives Fourth Symphony, and study it deeply. Thanks for listening. Ciao for now.
Thank you.